Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for watching ADH TV. Thousands and thousands of people are. We're pleased to report. We are your new home for compelling views and real commentary on the issues which matter to you. You have found us by searching ADH TV on your television, so tell your friends. They just go to their Apple TV app store or the Google Play store. It is easy to do, free to watch, and thankfully, as I said, thousands and thousands are doing just that. Well, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in trouble, as we discussed last night with David Maddox. More than 40 ministers have now quit, but he's refusing to go, insisting that if he were to go, that would mean three months of instability while the Conservative Party chose a new leader. And then once they did, he argues, a motley coalition consisting of Labor and the Scottish National Party would demand an early election because the new leader would not have a mandate. Boris thinks that would sink the Tories at an election. And that's a very good point, but whether it's a reason others are willing to accept, we're yet to find out. He wants to hang on until the summer recess, which is due in 14 days. Nonetheless, he is politically wounded. But how could someone who won the biggest parliamentary majority since the 1980s squander it? Many reasons. And these are reasons I raise with my guests constantly because they apply to our politics here in Australia. That is, when a political leader stands up to woke left-wing nonsense, like Boris initially did in his premiership, the public rewards you. When you deliver what the people want, that is Brexit, the greatest democratic exercise in Britain's history, which was frustrated at every turn by elitist politicians who wanted to ignore the public's will, you are rewarded. When you talk about want, wanting to economically level up the country, that is, give those outside metropolitan areas their fair share of the economic pie, whether that be infrastructure or better facilities, you are rewarded. Well, unfortunately for Boris, he then became unstuck due to, in an earlier life, being an always outspoken libertarian, and then as prime minister, presided over the world's harshest and longest restrictions and lockdowns. And just when the public thought he was one of them, he fell victim to double standards, parties in Downing Street while the rest of the country was locked away. And he then swallowed the globalist green agenda, fed, I might add, to him by the wife, endless talk about net zero, making him no better than Extinction Rebellion. He went on a high taxing, high spending blitz. Sound familiar, Matt Keane in New South Wales? As here, when conservatives and liberals stop being both conservative and liberal, you bleed out support. It's not rocket science. Here we have the energy crunch, 
which was aided by a coalition in power for nine years that refused to back a new coal-fired power station at Collinsville. I'll speak to Daniel Wilde about that soon. And then we've got an economic nightmare on our hands, a cost of living crisis, runaway inflation and years of failed monetary policy, same as the UK, and politicians have no answers. I'll speak to Innes Willocks about that tonight as well. Once these issues compound for any political leader, you're turfed out. Just ask Scott Morrison. I'll also look at Joe Biden and the mess he is making on petrol prices and the new government's inherited aged care crisis here. That sector is going backwards. I have some answers. A bit on Wimbledon and Kyrgios and the climate change alarmists have found their voice again, as, as I knew it would happen. Make, you, make sure you have your say, though. We want to hear from you. I was only answering some of your emails today. Email me at alanjones at adh.tv. Look, last night I raised significant questions about the problems faced by the world, which affect us all, including Australia, and the impact that a weak American presidency is having on the likely outcomes. The problem for us in this fairly volatile region in which we live is that Biden, the titular head of the world's democracies, proves daily he has little grip on the economy or world affairs. As I mentioned, this is the bloke who fell asleep during a meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister in the Oval Office. Biden's weakness brings into focus the price that we're paying at the Bowser for fuel. You check your Bowser. It's heart attack stuff. Well, America are facing similar problems. Just before Biden took office, what they call the gas price was $2.28 a gallon, average, $2.28. It is now more than double that, the national average sitting at $4.74. Inflation's on the march here and in America. In America, it is at a four-decade high, and 79% of Americans describe their economy as poor, as here, petrol prices are a big factor in this. Now, grade one economics tells us that price is a factor of demand and supply. If the floods wipe out the potato crop, potatoes are dearer. So more oil on the American market, refine it, and there's more gas, and the price goes down. So President Biden announced on April 21, in response to the calamity about petrol prices, what he called the largest ever release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. Fairly dangerous stuff. I have discussed this with Peggy. They are what the name suggests, reserves of oil if America were confronted by a crisis. The real crisis is of Biden's own making. When running for president in 2020, candidate Biden promised to stop new oil and gas drilling on all federal land and water. In a debate with the fellow Democrat Bernie Sanders, Biden said, quote, no more drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. This is an administration that can't remember today what they said yesterday. At the end of June, just gone, at a NATO summit in Madrid, Biden said Americans would have to put up with high gas prices for, quote, as long as it takes due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Unquote. But three days later in New Orleans, the Vice President Kamala Harris said that lowering the price of gas was, quote unquote, probably the Biden administration's top priority. This has led President Biden in recent weeks to attack the oil companies, saying they only care about profits and not the well-being of the average consumer. Only this week, President Biden tweeted that, quote, companies running gas stations, unquote, 
should, quote, bring down the price that you're charging at the pump. My message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is the time of war and global peril, unquote. Well, not only does President Biden not know that the oil price is set on the world market and subject to dynamics that are not under the control of US oil giants, but also his comments brought out of the woodwork the Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos, who argued that Biden's words displayed an apparent ignorance of America's free market economy, where demand and supply dictate the price of goods. This was an own goal, of course, for the Chinese, whose state media reporter, a communist mouthpiece, said, quote, now the US president finally realises that capitalism is all about exploitation. He didn't believe this before, unquote. Well, back to the perfectly sensible comment by the Amazon founder that supply and demand dictate the price of goods. Just forget for a moment draining the strategic petroleum reserve to now the lowest level since 1986. The petrol price continues to climb, more than double what it was before Biden took office. For a fifth of America, the price is above $5 a gallon. So what happened to these reserves, which Biden released in June? More than 5 million barrels were exported to Europe and Asia. 470,000 barrels of crude were shipped from Texas to Italy. And cargoes of American oil, strategic reserves, were sent to the Netherlands, India, and more will leave Louisiana in July. In other words, Biden has shipped 5 million barrels from the United States strategic oil reserve abroad after claiming that releasing them would help ease the pain of Americans at the pump. Remember what I said, this is a leader of the free world who doesn't know today what he said yesterday. When the announcement of releasing the oil barrels was made in April, he said this, quote, these releases will put more than one million barrels per day on the market over the next six months and will help address supply disruptions caused by Putin's further invasion of Ukraine and the price hike that Americans are facing at the pump, unquote. Would Americans have believed the increase in supply was destined to domestic refineries in order to lower US petrol prices? Well, now he's been caught out and he's telling the oil companies to bring down the price that they're charging at the pump. Biden keeps trying to blame Putin, calling inflation Putin's price hike. But the New York Republican Congressman, Andrew Carbarino, has dished it up to Biden saying, quote, in November 2020, a barrel of oil was $43. A month before Putin invaded Ukraine, it was $87. He summed it up simply. Biden's excuses are a joke, unquote. Sadly, not as big a joke as the man pretending to lead the free world. Well, look, as you know, Australia is facing unconscionable levels of debt. There are four ways you can address the problem. The first seems to be the most common. Forget about it. Does debt matter? The second is you can raise taxes, but we're already taxed to the eyeballs. And it's not just the income tax and company tax. The Bowser is a tax office. Packet of cigarettes, taxed. Pint of beer, taxed. GST. Ridiculously employ someone and you're taxed. One of the issues that has brought Boris Johnson unstuck is that the electorate thought he was a genuine conservative, but he's presiding over the highest taxing British government in years. So that's the tax. Then you can cut expenditure. No government seems to have a stomach for that. Instead, they build what's called structural deficits. They are costs 
that you can't escape down the track. The Liberal government in New South Wales, as I told you recently, increased spending in one year in its budget by 26.5%. When we're being told that spending is one of the architects of inflation, a lot of money chasing not a lot of goods. And then there is productivity. How on earth do you achieve productivity, as I've said over and over again, when employers in every field of employment can't find workers? Tony Burke, a pretty sensible sort of fellow, is the Employment and Work Relations, Workplace Relations Minister. But even he has said the new government is determined to turn around the, quote, wage stagflation of the past 10 years. That has frightened the tripe out of many employers. Already, the lowest paid workers have received an increase of 5.2%. What happens if this leads to agitation in the workplace for across-the-board wage increases? Let's face it, with massive labour shortages, the employee most probably has never been in such a powerful bargaining position. There are half a million jobs out there that can't be filled. Also, half a million Australians unemployed. Has the work ethic become a major casualty of the pandemic? Well, Innes Willocks is the chief executive of the National Employer Association, a very good one, if I might add, and very plugged in, the AI Group. How do we get out of this mess? He joins us, Innes. Thank you for your time. How bad is the problem? Productivity. Well, productivity, Alan, has been flatlining now for well over a decade, and it's not getting any better. In fact, it's been the last government before the last election, one of their, their last acts was to get the Productivity Commission to start a review into how to pick up productivity. There's a lot of ways you can do it, but you know, one thing that we've made very clear, uh, and you referred to the minimum wage decision, uh, which came into effect on the 1st of July, 5.2%, was that that would lead to across the board significant wage increases that many employers wouldn't be able to bear. And they especially can't bear it when there's no productivity offset to go with the wage increase. Mm -hmm. So what are we seeing now, Alan? We're seeing unions make wage claims of up to 12% in the case of Qantas's engineers. We've seen construction uh, wage claims at around 7 or 8%. You know, 6 and 7 is becoming the norm across parts of the economy. Yeah, and when there's no productivity offset at a time when the economy is still trying to crawl its way out of the pandemic, these are going to be costs that many businesses can't afford. Mm -hmm. And what many employers are now doing and talking about doing is sort of basically bypassing people, unfortunately, and investing in uh, innovation and things that were like robotics and uh, data systems and the like, which take people out of the equation. That's sort of where we're getting to mm. because cost uh, of Innes, I've argued that a simple proposition, I'd like your thoughts on this, there's an army of workers out there, 400,000 of them, over the age of 65, who could return to the nation's workforce if we said to them, look, take a job, take your pay, pay your taxes, but you can keep your pension. What would be wrong with that? Absolutely nothing, Alan, absolutely nothing. And it's something we've been arguing with and we've put forward as well to governments. At the moment, the pension is a huge inhibitor, a huge mm. barrier to people getting or staying in the workforce. Yeah. And we are crying out for skilled workers. It doesn't matter what their no. age are. And reliable, reliable that. workers. Yeah. Nobody's Committed. suggesting a seven-year-old should, yes, should be running I a know. jackhammer on a building site. 
but there are so many other jobs yep. that they could fill. And at the moment, they're just not allowed to or they're disincentivised from it. And it's so simple, I have to tell you. What about the visa mess? Now, as I've been saying, the SC482 temporary visa is for someone who's skilled, whom an employer could bring in if there isn't an appropriate Australian worker. But that can take up to 15 months to process. Why can't we bring pensions in the workforce and cut the ridiculous delays in visa applications and productivity would grow? So the big issue around visas is two things. One is delay, it's time, takes a lot of time. And the other is cost. It's costing businesses up to $20,000 per person they're bringing into the country under that 482 visa. So I was hearing from a member this morning, Alan, just had spent $80,000 to bring in a welder from South Africa because had to bring in the rest of the family and the like. That's just impossible for a lot of businesses Absolutely. to do. So it's time and, time and cost issues. So there's three ways we can help resolve this in the short term. Migration, which you just touched on. So we'll have a look at that and structure that. Getting the mature workers back into the workforce and improving childcare to get more women in particular into the workforce. They're the three steps you can take. And at a time when we have those half a million unfilled jobs, businesses screaming out for labour, a lot of businesses giving up on trying to find labour, you know, we've got to start to pull those levers to get the economy Absolutely. moving. Absolutely. Like and it a lot of people... It doesn't take a review. It doesn't take six months. They need to talk to people like you. All right, they're talking to bureaucrats and they've got it wrong. They've put us in the mess we're in. Why don't we create in us a new essential skills visa and let them in if they have the essential skills? Well, it's a good point. It's a good question. We've been talking with the... Uh, immigration department around a manufacturing visa, just thinking more broadly. One of the biggest problems is that um, the system is still working on outdated things called ANZIC yes. codes. I won't bore your viewers with what they are, but they sort of ve are very limiting in what employers can do. And skills are, and workers now cross over different occupations. They do a lot of different things at once. And our system just hasn't caught up with that. So we have said you've got to review this system mm. to allow the workers we want to get into the country. What are the biggest two in-demand jobs at the moment? Chefs, cooks and truck drivers, yeah. would you believe? Yeah. That's what businesses are wanting at the moment. It's the basic things. Mm. In a, notwithstanding, let's turn the coin over now, uh, the significant rise in inflation, is the worker to whom we're both speaking now going to be asked to accept wage increases that are less than inflation? How do you adequately reward the wage earner without having an adverse effect on the performance and competitiveness of the national economy? It's a really good question, Alan. So up until March, the average wage increase in the private sector at that time was 2.6%. That tells you about where businesses were coping and unions were talking to us around putting forward wage claims of 3% or so. Since that minimum wage case came down, as I said, now the claims have gone through the roof, six, seven, eight percent, up to 12, as I mentioned. That's impossible for a lot of businesses. Mm. Some will just have to roll over and mm. then pass the cost on. Mm. But for a lot of businesses, they just won't be able mm. to do that. So they're going to be negotiations and they're going to have to be other ways to try to attract yes. and retain labour. See, the psychology um, so of this... The psychology is critical, isn't it? I mean, if the, psycholo the psychology becomes entrenched that any increase in wages must start with a five 
And that, of course, is what happened in the 70s. Um, we're in trouble. I mean, we've had, as you said, strikes already in Australia of workers seeking wage increases, in particular, I guess, nurses who've borne a tremendous burden during the pandemic. Where is the structure in place? I mean, Bob Hawke and Bill Kelty way back then had that summit and they brought everyone together. Do we need a summit or are we wasting their time on these talk fests? I mean, there's got to be some discussion about this, hasn't there? There has to be. And the government is going to try to bring employers, employees and a few others and, and government together in September and October to discuss these issues. Two days probably. It won't solve all of the problems, but at least we'll start to talk about them and at least recognise that there are these structural problems within the economy. Mm -hmm. If we get into this endless chase of wages chasing inflation, mm -hmm. it just leads to more interest rates, oh, more inflation, yeah, bigger yes. wage claims. We've been to this dance before, Alan, and we know it ends yeah. badly. Yes. So we've got to try to break the cycle very early, in, and that's what we've got to do. We just must do it no, for our own economic well-being. To, to my viewers, let me just say to my viewers, this man knows the scene backwards. Uh, so let me ask you this question. Is there a figure in your head, Innes, say 3.5% has been talked about in wages growth that would be sustainable? Well, 3.5 is around about where we could make it work. So we put forward a claim to the minimum wage, which took into account the half a percent superannuation, the pension costs that employers have to pay, other government supports. That took it to about 4.3% if you add all of that together, including the 0.5. So somewhere in the threes, three and a half to high threes, is about where it could sustainably end up at the moment. The problem is once you lock that in and the Reserve Bank will work desperately hard to get inflation back to 2 to 3%, you are still stuck with paying those wages if you're an mm. employer. And that's the big concern that we have, that they are costs that can't be moved on. Yes, indeed. And that's why those wage increases of 6 7 8% are just not sustainable in the long run. So just before you go, do you anticipate right now as we speak oversized pay claims becoming entrenched in future negotiations, which would fuel a wage-driven massive inflationary spiral? How then do you best address that? Well, Alan, we've We've always run a bit behind the Northern Hemisphere in everything really to do with COVID and COVID reaction when it comes to the economy and how the economy is running. Inflation came out first in America, for instance, and, and Europe, and then it emerged here. It's been, it was coming for a long time. In the UK, you are seeing strikes now for 11% wage claims. Yes. I fear that's what we're going to have in the months mm. to come mm. unless we can break the cycle and change mm. the psychology. And that's really that's really what our task is. Absolutely. We were working in a low inflation environment for a long time. We're now in a high inflation environment. It's like some in the union movement have got collective amnesia and forget mm. COVID ever happened. Mm. And it had a huge impact on business that is still recovering. Mm. We can never forget that. But our cities are sort of empty shells. We don't, you know, if we were to really put pressure on businesses, you'll see a lot of them fold. Good on you. Innes, one of the weaknesses, which is so good to talk to you, and we must talk often because we know that you know what you're talking about. One of the weaknesses, of course, there is no debate about these things in the country. And the virtue of the discussion we've just had, I hope, is that it becomes very educative and people can understand the issues from both sides. So I really welcome your Absolutely. being with us tonight and I hope we can talk again soon. I hope so. Thanks, Alan. There Take you are. That's, that's Innes Willocks, one of the 
most formidable thinkers on this issue of wages and employment. It's a massive, massive issue. Otherwise, we go downhill very, very quickly. Innes Willocks, thank you for your time. Look, just before we go any further, this is a little indulgence each night, isn't it? The most historic and prestigious tennis championship in the world has always been since 1877, the Wimbledon Championship. It was the world's first official lawn tennis tournament. The All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club, as it's called, situated in the heart of Wimbledon, is 11 kilometres from London. Back in 1877, the club decided to organise a tennis tournament to pay for the repair of its pony roller. There it is, pony, which is a rolling pin-like apparatus, as you can see, which was originally horse-drawn to maintain the lawns of the club. They had no tennis courts at the time. Obviously, when they built the tennis court, it was then pulled by a team of groundsmen and was used for over 60 years. Keep the picture there because it was retired in 1986, though you can still see it outside the entrance to the Wimbledon Lawn Tennis Museum. It is now semi-final time though, no pony rollers there. And the ladies' champion will be one of Alina Rybakina from Kazakhstan, or a former champion, Simona Hallett from Romania or the Tunisian number two seed, Ons Jabour. Can you believe it? Tunisia? I didn't even think they had a tennis court. Or the 32-year-old mother I told you about the other night, mother of two, Tatjana Maria of Germany. The women's semi-finals are on tonight. I think the Tunisian will win the title. Last night, the Australian, Isla Tomlanovic, looked as though she was headed for the semi-finals with an outstanding first set, but she was then run over by the big-hitting 23-year-old Russian-born Kazakhstani Elena Rybakina, who now plays Simona Halep, the former champion tonight. In the gentlemen's singles, as they call it, the Serbian number one seed Novak Djokovic will play the ninth seed from Britain. Britain, I tell you what, are making a big run with tennis. They've got a lot of good players. Cameron Norrie, who's an awkward but effective left-hander, and the great Spaniard, and number two seed Rafael Nadal will play our brilliant but enigmatic Australian Nick Kyrgios. It is a phenomenal achievement by Kyrgios. Who knows what will happen? Nadal, who's been dogged by injury, struggled throughout his quarterfinal against the young and gifted American number one Taylor Fritz to win the tiebreaker in the fifth set after four hours and 20 minutes. A showdown looms against the big serving Kyrgios who had too much firepower for the talented 26-year-old Chilean Christian Garin, Kerry Kyrgios winning in two hours and 13 minutes. However, Nadal said at the completion of his quarterfinal, it was impossible to predict if he'll be able to play Kyrgios on the centre court on Friday. He has a very significant abdominal injury, so who knows what's going to happen there. One thing must be said, there is not a player in men's tennis who walks onto the court to play Kyrgios, who believes victory is assured. Rafa is playing his first tournament on grass since his 2019 semi-final loss to Roger Federer, but he's won the gentleman's singles twice in the past. Novak Djokovic is attempting his seventh championship victory, which would see him join Pete Sampras and Bill Renshaw on seven, second for the most gentlemen's titles behind Roger Federer on eight. In women, the ladies, the great Martina Navratilova has won nine and Serena Williams seven. Well now, in relation to the floods, I warned that the climate change alarmists can't help themselves. But as I warned, they're out in force, linking the floods to climate change. And Anthony Albanese climbed onto the wagon, quote, 
Science has told us that if we continue to not take action globally on climate change, then these events, extreme weather events, will be more often and more intense, unquote. Well, Albo, you can't have it both ways. Didn't the darling of climate change, the 2007 Australian of the Year, Tim Flannery, say that because of climate change, the Sydney dams would be dry in as little as two years? You get the drift? Flannery said the science told him that the water problem would be so severe for Adelaide as a result of global warming, or they, they call it climate change now, that Adelaide could run out of water by 2009. But now Anthony Albanese, must be different science, eh? Says the science tells us that these floods and bushfires will occur more often and be more intense. He went further than that. Inaction on climate change has brought about the flooding catastrophe. But Flannery told us inaction on climate change would mean the dams would never fill again. I think we're entitled to be confused. I'm not Nostradamus, but I'll tell you something. It is all this alarmism that has led to the irrational determination to legislate to cut emissions by 43% by 2030. The Teals want 60% and the Greens want 100%. The government, new government, is rushing headlong into real consequences. My continuing prediction is simple. Available, reliable and affordable energy will not be provided by renewable energy, not by 2030 and not by 2050. But how much are we all going to have to pay to find that out? Well, Daniel Wilde, as you know, is the Director of Research at the Institute of Public Affairs. He's building a wonderful reputation for himself on this program as a young man who thinks and speaks with great relevance and clarity on issues that matter. Tonight, a new poll commissioned by the Institute of Public Affairs reinforces the truth that a majority of Australians, now listen to this, want politicians to abandon net zero, secure energy supplies and avoid blackouts. How is that a surprise? But the poll of 1,001 Australians undertaken in June for the IPA asked respondents a simple question, whether they agree or disagree with the following statement. And this was it. Australia should pause its commitment to the policy of net zero emissions by 2050, as the UK has done, until we have enough energy supplies to avoid blackouts. And the IPA asked them, do you agree or disagree. 61% agreed, only 17% disagreed. But then the breakdown is fascinating. Daniel joins us. Daniel, thank you for your time. Look, by the way, while I'm thinking of it, I'd be interested in the results of another poll if Australians were asked, do you believe we should do what other countries are doing, build high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power stations to take advantage of our abundant coal resources and guarantee cheap energy for Australians and Australian businesses. What do you think the response to that would be, Daniel? Oh, well, Alan, lovely to be with you again. I think the response will be overwhelmingly positive from the Australian uh, community who understand the cost of net zero and understand the significant impact that this is having on our economy, our society, our way of life. Uh, we're seeing, Alan, across uh, the world and in Australia, specifically the beginning of a great energy crisis with skyrocketing prices, uh, chronic shortages, all of which are the product of short-sighted government policy on both sides uh, of the aisle. Just look at what's happening in Europe right now, Alan. We've got to scramble to get more coal onto the market. 
We've got the EU that just recently voted to include gas as a clean energy uh, source, which means the government will be backing it in uh, even more. We've had the UK recently say that they need a pause on their net zero emissions commitment in order to shore up their domestic uh, energy supplies. Yet politicians in Australia, cheered on by the corporate elites and the media elites, continue to push this fantasy of wind and solar, which cannot give us the no, base no load way. power no that we need as a nation. And to go to your question, Alan, of how many Australians would back in coal-fired power, we asked a similar question to that a couple of months ago about what do you think uh, the focus of energy policy should be, reliability, affordability, or meeting net zero. 72% of Australians said that the focus mm -hmm. of energy policy must be on reliability and affordability. Only 28% said it should be meeting net zero, and you yeah. can only get reliability and affordability from coal. Absolutely. See, there is no major problem confronting this country that isn't the consequence of politicians and public policy. And as you said, they're then supported by the lefties in the media and the woke mob in the business community. Interestingly, in this poll, though, Daniel, not much difference between the male and female responses. No, that's right. What we saw was widespread support across all the different ways of breaking down the analysis, whether by age, by gender, by income, by uh, where people live. And this gets to the fact that no matter who you are or where you're from, high energy prices are going to hit you hard. And it goes to the point that Australians understand the cost of net zero. They're waking up to it. The mm. more we learn about net zero, the less support there is. We know at a headline level, Net zero sounds like a wonderful marketing slogan. If you just say net zero, do you want net zero? People say, sure, that sounds nice. But when you ask them, do you want to pay for it? No. Do you want to have uh, it compromise your reliability or affordability? No. Uh, do you want to have skyrocketing prices? Uh, no. So the more we learn about net zero, uh, the less support there is in the community. Yes, indeed. And just on those male, female, 39% of males strongly agree. 33% of females strongly agree. 24% of males agree, 27% of females agree. And the age groups are interesting. This was fascinating, wasn't it, Daniel? 18 to 24, 28% strongly agree, 33% agree, and only 11% disagree. Well, that's right, Alan. It's really a significant point that you make because, to be honest, it gives me hope. We know that there's, yes. there's so much indoctrination that goes on in our schools with the with the woke national curriculum that is teaching Australians to be ashamed of themselves, of their country. It's teaching them this climate ideology rather than teaching them how to think. It's training them to be activists and protesters. Yet over 60% of young Australians who have come out of schools, many of whom would currently be in university, over 60% of them say they don't want net zero. That's it. Now, that's despite that's despite the, the propaganda. almost complete consensus of the, the – despite yeah. the propaganda – and despite the almost complete consensus of the political class telling them one thing, they're able to see through it. And that mm -hmm. should give us hope for the future that young Australians can see through what they're being told by their teachers yeah. in the media. 18 to 24 percent, 18 to 24 year olds, 61 percent totally agree. Now, if we go to the 25 to 54 year olds, 38 percent strongly agree, 26 percent agree, and only 7 percent disagree. So 64 percent of 25 to 54-year-olds agree and only 13% disagree. I mean, it was interesting, though, wasn't it, Daniel? Amongst the 55 and over, the disagreement figure of 25% was nearly double the percentage who disagree in the 18 to 24 and 25 to 54 age group. 
Look, it was slightly elevated there, but even if you look at the agree versus disagree breakdown, there's still overwhelming support yep. among uh, those over the age of 54 uh, behind pausing net zero. So again, this is across every single age group. And I think that's really important because you know, when a, no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're at school, coming out of uni, starting your first job, if you're in that middle age bracket, you've probably got families, kids and a mortgage. If you're at that older age bracket, you're probably heading towards retirement. So you're concerned about how much money you're going to have uh, to live off. And the cost of living, of course, is a big issue for pensioners. Um, it affects you at every stage uh, of life. So the important point here is that from the perspective of the opposition, this is a clear winner. You know, almost every single Australian across every single category yeah. that you can break down, their demographic, socioeconomic markers, they're being very clear. Focus on reliability and affordability, get more coal onto the market, and don't worry about this inner city teal green nonsense because that is just a distraction from the real issues. Absolutely. Now, the state figures, just for the benefit of our viewers, no difference. In the ACT, 85% totally agree. New South Wales, 63. Northern Territory was interesting, 50. Queensland, 66. South Australia, 53. Tasmania, 60%. Victoria, 60%. WA, 53%. And amongst those on incomes of $100,000 and over, 72% agree. On 45,000 to 100,000, 66% totally agree. And on less than 45,000, 56% agree. I mean, Daniel, I mean, I said earlier, all this Labor, Teals, Greens rhetoric about legislating for net zero emissions. I mean, Labor want 43% reductions by 2030. The Teals want 60. Bant wants 100%. They're going to run into a reality wall, aren't they? Well, they are, Alan, and we're already already starting to run into that wall. I mean, it was on the first day of winter that the Australian Energy Market Operator, which is the chief government body in charge of the energy system, said we're going to have to start rationing our gas supplies. Not long thereafter, families across Australia were told to turn off your heaters in the middle of winter. We've had aluminium smelters told to curtail their, their operations in order to uh, not put too much pressure on uh, the grid. We've got skyrocketing energy prices, both for businesses uh, and of families. And this is just the beginning. You cannot operate a 21st century society and economy like Australia's with an advanced manufacturing base without having reliable and affordable energy supply. And again, I come back to this important point. Europe is the tip of the spear for this. They are learning what happens when you outsource your energy sovereignty to a hostile foreign nation. Yeah. And as I say, they are scrambling to get more coal, scrambling to get more gas onto their local market. Now, in Australia, we are blessed as a nation to have thousands of years worth of coal, gas and oil and uranium right beneath our feet. And as you rightly identify, it's got nothing to do with our nation or our people. It's short-sighted political leaders that continue to push renewables onto the market that cannot get the job done. Now, not only is this a risk to our economy, it's a serious national security risk. Yes, it is. As you know, 80% 80, 80 of the content, the minerals of solar uh, solar construction and wind construction, they come from China. So effectively, we're outsourcing our energy system to China as a result of net zero. And you can't have national security without economic security. I mean, here they were before the election saying, we're going to reduce power bills. The power bills continue to skyrocket. Daniel, where is the business case that is in the public place to be debated and to be argued about the cost to the nation of net zero? None. 
Well, it's an important it's an important point, Alan. You're right. None. There's no debate. Don't forget, Scott Morrison went to Glasgow mm. last year oh. and signed up to Labor's policy yeah. of net zero by mm. 2050, and there was no debate in the political sphere None. or in the media sphere or in the corporate sphere about the costs and benefits of the policy of net zero. He simply went to Gladstone, he simply went to Glasgow and sold out the workers of Gladstone. He said we're going to do net zero, which by the way was the policy they had opposed at the 2019 election. Now, this gets to a much bigger issue is that on so many of the big topics facing our nation's future, whether it's to do with the policy of net zero, whether it's to do with the indigenous voice to parliament, whether it was lockdowns or mandates and the response to covid, we have not had any serious debate because the accepted contours of debate are being shrunk. You know, if you speak out on these issues, you're cancelled. You have your career cancelled. They go after you. They call you a climate denier. Uh, And so what we're seeing is is a shrinking of the acceptable parameters of debate. As we've just discussed, an overwhelming majority of Australians do not want net zero, but that view is not reflected in any of the major institutions of our society. And that is a real risk and a real problem to our democracy because we have so many people in this country who are without a voice. That's it. I'll get a voice here though, I can tell you. Every week as we talk to you, outstanding presentation, Daniel. Love it to talk to you. Very important. I will be looking later on in the program at a very simple point, and that is when Flannery became the Australian of the Year in 2007, it was because he'd frightened the hell out of everybody saying, we'll never, it'll never rain again because of climate change. Now the Prime Minister of Australia is saying, we're gonna have more floods because of climate change. I'm not sure which science book they're reading from actually. Daniel, talk to you next week, wonderful stuff. Pleasure, thank you, Alan. There he is, Daniel, Daniel Wild, who's the Director of Research at the Institute of Public Affairs. Look, I didn't raise this when I spoke to Innes Willocks about wage increases inflation and the crisis in employment. When employers can't find employees, I suppose we're entitled to be indignant that there are 548,000 unemployed Australians on welfare. But sadly, many of them are unemployable. There must be some sympathy for the incoming government. After all, Labor's only been in power six of the last 22 years. We not only have unconscionable levels of debt, but half a million Australians who are so badly educated, so badly trained, so lacking in discipline, lacking in commitment, drowning from an entitlement mentality, they're most probably unemployable. What is equally disturbing is that before entering government, Labor promised 53 reviews, roundtables and inquiries, 18 new public service officers, agencies and expert panels, none of which will ever be abolished, but they'll certainly spend money. Which brings me to ask again, Where does the aged care workforce fit into all of this? What was once a crisis is now a calamity. Last year, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, CEDA, warned that there was an aged care labour shortage of 17,000 just to meet basic standards of care. They are now warning that labour shortage is disturbingly doubled. This is not an easy crisis to solve. There is a Minister for Aged Care, the 37-year-old Queensland member for the seat of Lilly, who's been in the parliament for only three years, Arnica Wells. Today, she said the obvious, that aged care needs, quote, urgent reform as quickly as possible, unquote. But has she spoken to the treasurer, Jim Chalmers? She'll need money. The majority of providers are operating at a loss. She's right when she said today, quote, every rock I turn over, it is worse than we thought. 
And I think that is the experience across the board. The situation is in crisis, unquote. She said she'll be looking at the forecast funding shortfall. Minister, you have it. The Royal Commission, which two years ago warned that at the low end of what's needed, an extra $3.5 billion a year will have to be found. This is where we're entitled to be angry, as I was at the time, of $80 billion being spent on JobKeeper. For many people who shouldn't have been put out of work in the first place, let alone the person on casual pay of $400 a week who suddenly found himself on $750. This is why aged care goes without. The Aged Care Royal Commission found that neither the Commonwealth Department of Health nor the aged care regulator had any specific plan for the aged care sector. Now, all governments mouth cliches about dignity in old age. Every aged care facility to be accredited is expected to have infection controls in place. But hundreds of aged care Australians died in aged care as a result of coronavirus. And the Royal Commission found that across the aged care sector, there have been failures in clinical care and infection control, which failures have resulted in hundreds of deaths. Yet residents pay a small fortune for a place in an aged care facility. The Albanese government has promised 24-7 on-site nurses, more care hours per resident, and to fund a pay rise for aged care workers. None of that's happened. But one can only wonder what kind of care these 200,000 residents in almost 3,000 aged care homes are receiving. The entry-level pay for an aged care worker is $21.09 an hour, less than that for a supermarket shelf stacker. Sadly, pay alone, as CEDA has reported, won't be enough to solve the workforce challenge. So far, 2,700 nursing home residents have died from coronavirus. More than 42,000 staff have contracted coronavirus. More than 650 out of the almost 3,000 residential aged care facilities are currently dealing with a coronavirus outbreak. Now, I'm sure the Treasurer knows that, but he's worrying, of course, about how far expenditure can travel ahead of revenue when you've got a trillion dollars of debt. Already, aged care is a massive item in the budget, $22 billion a year employing more than 360,000 Australians. But think for a moment what onerous, demanding and physical work is asked of an aged care worker. And for their trouble, poorly paid. Carers are leaving because they can earn significantly more money in other areas of the care economy, including disability care and the general health sector. The Health Minister Mark Butler is saying he will introduce laws next month to reform aged care, including 24-7 nursing, in residential aged care from July next year. But that will require an additional 14,000 nurses. Where are they going to come from? Do we find carers from overseas to enter a demanding and poorly paid environment? Why aren't personal care workers added to the temporary or permanent skilled migrant list? Create a new visa, as I said earlier tonight, an essential skills visa. Let them in if they've got the skills. According to the paper by the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, the real crisis in aged care is that even if the sector can find an additional 35,000 workers a year additional, that would only bring aged care up to a basic standard. To bring aged care in Australia up to international best practice would require a further 8,000 additional workers. When we talk about change in Australia, 
The one change we don't talk about is attitudinal change. The attitude of families towards their elderly members has to change. We can't keep asking government to do everything. This is one sector where I doubt we'll ever be able to afford the resources it needs, which sadly means the abandonment, at least partial, of the elderly. Every one of us one day will have at least one elderly member of the family. The provision of dignity to that member shouldn't be left to government alone. Well, before we go, I have spoken to the Queensland Opposition Leader David Christofoli twice on this show. He's a solid performer and he has got things to say. The first time I had him on, it was to respond to the Queensland budget handed down by Cameron Dick, in particular the untruths told by the Queensland Treasurer. Prior to the 2020 Queensland state elections, I told you, at a press conference in Cairns, Cameron Dick was asked on taxes, are you ruling out new or increased business taxes? The Treasurer, Cameron Dick, said, quote, there won't be any increased taxes. We have said that very clearly from the start, no new taxes from the Labor government if we are re-elected, unquote. Well, here we were two weeks ago with Treasurer Cameron Dick introducing a $1.2 billion hike in the rate of coal royalties, then an 80 million a year rise in gambling taxes, and then a mental health levy on big business, whether big businesses or not is questionable. Just on this hike in the rate of coal royalties. Isn't it funny how when it comes to public debate, politicians mouth their dislike of coal, but they're never afraid come budget time to have coal royalties pay for their extravagant spending. Remember, this is the same Palaszczuk government who flew out former US Vice President Al Gore, who has a carbon footprint the size of Godzilla, to Queensland and to lecture on Climate Week. It costs the Queensland taxpayer $320,000. Australians have got to wake up to this flimsy picking and choosing attitude by politicians when it comes to coal because it is highly dishonest. You either want the lights on, keep electricity bills low, bolster jobs and economic activity for the regions and collect your cut to build better roads, schools and hospitals, or you don't. They can't keep having it both ways, which is what people like Matt Canavan and Keith Pitt are saying. Now, I don't have much time for Ian McFarlane. He is the Queensland Resources Council Chief Executive, but was formerly the federal member for Groom, a seat in Queensland based on Toowoomba. McFarlane was a minister in the Howard and Abbott governments. He's obsessed with digging up things, dreams about it at night. He'd dig up your house if he thought there was a coal reserve underneath it. But he has a point when he says that the intervention by the Japanese ambassador to Australia warning that the Queensland government has jeopardised new business opportunities due to the hike in coal royalties is a warning worth hearing. In a speech to the University of Queensland, Shingo Yamagami warned some companies were already questioning, Japanese companies, questioning if Queensland would continue to be the, quote, safe and predictable place to invest in that they once knew. On Queensland's new royalty regime, Mr Yamagami said, quote, this will have a huge impact on mining companies' bottom line, including Japanese companies that have operated in Queensland for decades, unquote. As the Queensland Resources Council Chief Executive McFarlane said of Mr Yamagami's comments, quote, I've never seen a comment like that from an ambassador about a government action. It's absolutely unprecedented. It highlights the offence the Cameron Dick comments about foreign companies has caused 
and also underlined the danger Queensland is in now, unquote. The Queensland Treasurer is really getting a name for himself and it isn't for the right reasons. Coal pays the way. That's it from me for this week. Thank you for your company. Remember, we are the last bastion of common sense, but common sense isn't common. See you next Monday, right here on ADH-TV. Have a good weekend. Good night.